Hey, welcome this morning. My name is Bobby. I'm one of the pastors here at Soma Northwest. And um, next Sunday, uh, we, along with many other churches across the country, will be observing uh, Orphan Sunday. It's a, a Sunday where uh, we get an opportunity to talk about uh, orphan care. We get to talk about adoption. We get to talk about foster care and just how it relates to the church, uh, how we as God's people uh, are called and have an opportunity to welcome children across this country into our homes in various capacities. And I don't think that I have to lay out a, uh, a pretty elaborate case for why adoption matters and even why adoption is something that's close to the heart of God. I do, uh, as I was thinking about setting this up this morning, I thought about Jesus's words to his disciples uh, in the upper room, his last meal with his disciples gathered in the language that he uses as he's telling them that he is getting ready to go away, but he assures them, I will not leave you as what? Orphans. But I will come to you. And then Paul follows that up in Romans chapter 8, talking about the Spirit, God's Spirit that came, that is a part of the people of God living with us and living in us. And Paul writes these words in Romans chapter 8 when he talks about the Spirit and he says, we're not debtors to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. But he says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And listen to this. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption. As sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. All throughout the New Testament, the language of adoption, well, God welcoming those who were outsiders, those who were foreigners, those who were aliens, those who did not have a family into his family, to be his children and to experience all the rights of a natural born son and daughter. That language is all over the place. And so this morning, uh, I'm going to invite Caitlin Bland to come up. Many of you are familiar with the ministry of safe families. Uh, many of you are our hosts. Uh, you have had various uh, interactions with safe families. And then a lot of us in our MCs and, and just through friendships uh, have been exposed to the ministry of safe families. So this morning, uh, Caitlin is going to talk about how safe families and the ministry of safe families fits within this idea of orphan care and the church. And then next week, uh, we're going to get to hear from Kenny and Emily Nocton. And they're just going to share their stories, uh, their story as they have journeyed along as safe families hosts. Um, and, and what that has looked like, and just some of the things that they've dealt with, some of the things that they've wrestled with the Lord uh, over, and, and what their experience has been. Um, and so, again, we know just organically a lot of momentum within our community here around the ministry of safe families. And so over the next couple of weeks, and then later on this month, uh, we just wanted to uh, expose us even greater to uh, even more to the ministry of safe families and how we as a church can be involved in that and how that that is something that is a part of, of orphan care and adoption and something that is really close to the heart of God. So, Caitlin. Thank you. Um, I'm Caitlin. I am really grateful to be here today and mildly terrified to talk in front of you about uh, Safe Families for Children. It is a ministry that is incredibly near and dear to my heart, uh, to my husband Connor's heart, and I know to so many of you in this room. And so what I really want to do today is take a chance to kind of do a 30,000-foot view, big-picture view of what Safe Families is and why it exists. 
And I hope that this time it is informative, it is encouraging, and wherever the Lord intimately has you this morning on that journey of awareness, of action, on behalf of the orphan, behalf of the vulnerable, behalf of the marginalized, that it might just give space or direction to what that next yes or that next step could be. Because I know that was foundational for Connor and I. Um, we've been really intimately involved with Safe Families for the past three years. If you would have come to me, though, three and a half years ago or four years ago and told me about Safe Families, I would have said two things. Uh, the first is I would have said, that is incredible. That is not just a good idea, but that is a God idea. That is divinely inspired. That is spirit-filled. Um, this is so in step with the heart of God. The second thing I would have told you is I will champion that all day. But there is no way that I am qualified or that we are equipped to do that <laughs> um, or called to do that. And just praise God in his gentle, gracious, faithful way. He just spoke into those spaces. And not with condemnation or shame or guilt trips, but just those fears, those doubts, those insecurities, these next small incremental yeses has taken us to where we are today, three years later with Safe Families, and where we are headed uh, with orphan care. So I just hope wherever you are today, intimately with the Lord, um, that it might give that space. It might give some idea of what that next incremental yes could be. Uh, so Safe Families for Children, it is a movement of the body of Christ. It is a network of believers that surrounds families in crisis, giving them extended, extended family support. And it does so by providing safe, temporary care for their kiddos, while parents in crisis are giving the chance, the time, and the help that they need to get back on their feet. And so in that way, Safe Families for Children operates as a gospel-centered, preventative alternative to foster care. A gospel-centered, preventative alternative to foster care. And so that first piece is that Safe Families is gospel-centered, and this is our crux. This is our why we do what we do. And that is ultimately and most importantly to see God's name be made great and to see his gospel go out in word and in deed, that his name would be made great and his gospel would go out. And so in that way, Safe Families is not just a social justice movement, right, a group of good people going out to do good things, but rather it is a kingdom justice movement, it is a group of redeemed people going out to bring the message and mercy of Jesus. And so because it is a kingdom justice movement, uh, Safe Families is passionate that this is a work of the local church. And they want to see the local church mobilized to do this work. Um, they believe, as do I, that those who God has called, he will best and most equip to meet that call. And it is evident in scripture. There are in Old and New Testament 15 places, 15 promises that God makes specifically to the orphan, specifically to the fatherless, calling his people to be his expression of care until his return. And so in that way, the church is not the backup plan. We are plan A. Um, 100 years ago, foster care did not exist in the United States. It was the church. And so safe families would love to see the church get resurrected back to her historical and biblical role of being on the foreground. So we are a kingdom movement of the local church, and we're seeking to resurrect this idea of God-designed hospitality, literally the love and the welcoming in of stranger. And so hospitality is a word we hear a lot. We're going to hear it a lot more as the holidays come. Um, and you can, you can think of a lot of things. It could be, you know, cookouts, opening the door to neighbors and friends. And hospitality is all of those wonderful things. It is not less than any of those things. But I think it's beautiful that in Scripture we see that hospitality is almost so much more than that. And so the word hospitality um, in the New Testament, in the Greek, literally translates to the love of stranger the love of stranger. And that's because that's what's been shown to us. That's the hospitality God had for us. That God, being the greatest host, saw us strangers far off from the promise. He drew near to us in his mercy, turning us from stranger to family, bringing us in by the blood of Christ. And so now, what has been done internally on our behalf, we get the call and the privilege to do externally on the behalf of others. To look at the literal stranger, the person we do not know from Adam, and to draw near and to love them as family. And guys, that only makes sense because of the cross. The hospitality only makes sense because of Jesus. And so at Safe Families, we call it, it's not just open door hospitality, but it's open roof hospitality. And we get that from the story of the paralytic, the paralyzed man. And so I'm sure a lot of you know that story. There's a paralyzed man. His friends lower him in the roof. Jesus heals him both physically and spiritually. Um, so much to gain from that story. But as being a host family and serving in safe family, something that has struck me, you know, after the crowd leaves, after the man walks off, after Jesus leaves, there's a host left in that home with a hole in the roof. 
right? <laughs> and I could imagine um, that neighbors, that friends are coming to them and like, are you not ticked? Like, they weren't going to fix that. Like, wh look what they have left you with. But I can also imagine without skipping a beat, that host family said, it is worth it. The healing work of Jesus happened in my home. You can take my roof, my walls, my door, my life. Jesus was here. The work of Jesus happened in my home. It is worth it. And friends, that resonates on such a deep level. Serving in this ministry is costly. It has cost us our time, our resources, our money, um, pieces of us, our heart. But if you ask without second guessing, you will say, it is worth it. The healing work of Jesus has happened in my home. You can take my roof. You can take my walls. Sidebar, no safe family's kid has ever put a hole in a roof. So that will not happen. <laughs> but it is costly. But I just love that Jesus, he's not a liar. When he says to lose your life is to find it, that is true. That is true. And so this is our crux. At safe families, we are a gospel-centered movement. The second piece, we are a preventative movement to foster care. So kind of how foster care is designed to work is that once blatant abuse and neglect happens, the state will intervene and remove kiddos. It's a needed thing. But what is also so often the case is that abuse and neglect are not isolated incidents, but there are so many things leading up to that abuse or neglect. So say you have a family that is whole, um, but dad loses his job and doesn't have good coping strategies. So he turns to substance abuse or alcohol, um, has to walk out, and now single mom and kids. She's under-resourced. She doesn't have community. She has no one to care for her kids. She needs to work a second job. She finds a guy willing to stand in the gap, leaves her kids alone with that guy. Abuse happens. And so here at step 20, the state is going to intervene and remove, but help was needed all the way upstream at steps one, two, and three. And so this is what Safe Families is about, is prevention. Could we prevent there from being one more orphan? Could there be one less orphan, one less broken family in our world if we can move upstream and give help at steps one, two, and three? So Safe Families, it's a preventative to foster care. And the third piece, it's an alternative to foster care. So there's kind of a few different ways that Safe Families is different. One of the primary ways is that it has a double voluntary model. So in foster care, when that abuse neglect happens, uh, kiddos are forcibly removed and parental rights are terminated. It's not the choice of that family. However, in Safe Families, when a family interacts with crisis, they are voluntarily coming to Safe Families, reaching out for help, making a safe plan for their kids and themselves. They are not losing parental rights. You cannot be mandated or forced to use Safe Families. So they are coming in a voluntary way. And then on the other side are hosts. So these are believers. These are singles. These are married couples with kids. These are married couples without kids. Um, are coming also 100% voluntarily. They are not compensated. There's no coercive motivation. Um, they are just coming from calling and compassion. And so with both people are coming to the table in this way, it really lays the groundwork for relationship to be built. And building relationship is so foundational to the work of Safe Families. Because of all the reasons that people will come, and they are varied, crisis could be just a single mom who has to have a medical procedure and doesn't have a place for a couple days for her kids to go, um, or a mom needing to give birth. It could be a family facing joblessness, homelessness, eviction, um, immigration, domestic rights. All the specifics are all over the board. But there is one underlining reason that people will come to save families, and that is that they are socially isolated. That is that when this crisis strikes, they do not have one number in their phone that they could call and someone would show up who is safe, who is trustworthy, and could take care of their babies. And Connor and I, we don't have forever kids yet, but by God's grace, I know if and when we did and something happened, I wouldn't have one number. I'd have 20 numbers or 30 numbers. And so many are in this room, so I hope you're okay with that. <laughs> but I would expect you guys <laughs> to show up and take my kids. Um, but it's just a result of the, of the sinful and broken world that we live in, that so many are socially isolated, that they are far off. They do not have but one person, that social safety net. And that's what safe families, that's what the church is designed to do, is to wrap around those families in crisis. So Safe Families for Children is a gospel-centered, preventative alternative to foster care. Um, that is kind of the 30,000-foot view. We would love to just continue the conversation. Um, we would love if you have 
questions, whatever you think that next yes, if we can engage in that, um, a couple ways to do that. One, we do have a table out there, and there's donuts. Um, and we have uh, this great, it's really oh, a good informational brochure, so you can pick one up. Um, and we have a sign-up sheet. Each week, Safe Family Central Indiana has a weekly Wednesday email. It's very brief. It is one scroll of the thumb on your phone. But it's going to outline all the current hostings that are happening in Indianapolis, um, all the kiddos on the wait list. It's going to give prayer needs, praise requests, and like the tangible things. So we're going to start doing a clothing drive. We're going to start doing collecting toys for Christmas. You can just real time see those needs. And that might be the next yes. Also, I love that at this church, we believe that prayer is not the preparation for the work of the ministry, but it is the work of the ministry. And so that prayer list that comes out each Wednesday, even if it, that is getting on the front lines, is to bring these families, uh, these kiddos, these workers before the throne of God. Um, it's also the prayer focus in our bulletin. And then also in our bulletin, you're going to see that November 23rd, we're having an informational meeting about safe families for SOMA. So we're going to kind of go from 30,000 feet down to 10,000 feet. Um, here's some more specific ways to get involved. Yes, hosting is one, but there's about a dozen others. Um, so some more specific ways how you can get involved. We're going to have a Q&A panel um, to answer questions. Uh, dinner's provided. Child care is provided. Information to sign up should be there. So thank you guys so much for letting me share today. Over the first couple years of our existence as a church community, we have had kids here on Sunday mornings. We've had kids in our kids' classes. We've had kids in our missional community groups who have been loved on, who have been provided for, who have heard about Jesus, who have seen a community of people that look different, that come from different backgrounds, that are experiencing different things, that are coming together because they love Jesus Christ, because of the ministry of safe families. And so, yeah, we want to continue to support safe families in a lot of different ways. But I encourage you to stop at the table uh, on your way out this morning and talk more to Caitlin and others. Uh, and then next week, we're going to hear from the Nocton's and hear just personally what this has looked like in their life. But would you bow with me, and, and can we just pray for a second uh, and lift this up to the Lord? Father, it's no small thing that we can come to you and call you Father. It's not something to be taken for granted, that we are children of, of the Most High God, that we have been welcomed into the family of God with all the rights and privileges of our brother Jesus that we have been welcomed into your family, that we stand in your presence because we are your sons and we are your daughters. We thank you for the ministry of safe families. We thank you for how it has impacted countless lives in this city. We thank you for the children who have been a part of our church community. We thank you for the moms and for the dads who have been ministered to by this community. And Lord, we ask for your hand of blessing to continue to be on safe families. And we pray that you would lead us as a church. That you would lead us as individuals. To see how we can support, how we can pray, how we can get involved. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity. And we thank you that your heart is for the most vulnerable and the most needy, and that you don't run, but that you step in and you offer your presence and your provision and your care through your people. We thank you for that privilege and that honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite Nate and Deb up to read our scripture passage this morning. It's a long passage, but uh, it's good for us. Good morning. My name is Nate. I'm one of the pastors here at Soma. And before we begin reading, I want to just admonish all of you. Um, this morning, we have been blessed with words of prophecy from God's spirit from two of our sisters. And one of the primary responsibilities that I have 
as your pastor, that Bobby has, that Andrew has, is to identify sound teaching and right doctrine that, that's, that is above almost everything else so that you all can, with confidence, hear God's word and say, yes, this is trustworthy teaching. And both of our sisters have, in God's spirit, delivered God's message to us directly. We hear about, you know, prophecy, and sometimes you think, wow, this is like uh, f- future foretelling but it is the direct application of God's word, his law, his truth to everyday life. And so both uh, Tamise and Caitlin have delivered God's truth directly from his word with direct application to our lives this morning. And I hear their words and I hear God speak to me saying, this is how you should live. This is the, this is the influence this should have on your life. And I, as your pastor, say that, I would admonish all of you to take their words very seriously and take them to heart because they are beautiful and they are from the Spirit. And I'm so, so thankful for both of them. So just, uh, yeah, just praise God for their ministry to us this morning. Uh, this morning we are going to be reading uh, in the book of Exodus, uh, page 42 in your blue uh, Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, uh, for yourself, please take that with you. That's your gift. And, and put your finger in that passage, but I don't want you to actually open it and follow along. Put down uh, your phones and just listen in here this morning. Because for the first 1,500 years of the church, this is how believers would hear God's word. Read out loud to them gathered in Sunday because they didn't have copies of God's word. And even now... Millions of brothers and sisters across the globe are hearing God's word in this way, just read to them. We believe in the public reading of the scriptures because we believe that our teaching is supposed to come from there, that we hold God's word in high esteem. Um, I'm not going to make everybody stand this morning for the reading of God's word, though, <laughs> though that's what brothers and sisters do all across the world. So now, as we read this passage to you, and as it's lengthy, Listen and take it in and remember and think, wow, I have the privilege not just of hearing this on Sunday freely, openly, in a government building. (laughs) But there are brothers and sisters who this is their only opportunity to hear God's word. They don't have their own copies. It may not even be freely available in their language. To own it would be death. And they're gathered in secret and they're hearing God's word. And this is how they take it in. So this morning, uh, let's communally share in that experience together as we read Exodus, uh, part of chapter 32, and then all the way through the end of chapter 34. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro, gate to gate, enemy throughout the camp. Each of you kill his brother, his companion, his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did, according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you've been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one of you at the cost of his son, his brother, that he may bestow a blessing upon you this day. And the next day Moses said to the people, You've sinned a great sin, And now I will go up to the Lord and perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out from the book you've written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go. Lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin against them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they had made the calf, the one that Aaron had made. And the Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. 
And when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. And therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. When Moses would go up to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak to Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses returned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by, and then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Then the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me at the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and glorious and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting iniquity of fathers on children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if I have now found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go by in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and sin and take us for your inheritance. And he said, behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as not have been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst." You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim, for you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. 
lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month Abib. For in the month Abib you came out from Egypt. All that open the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruit of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put a veil over his face again until he went to speak with him. This is the Lord, word of the Lord. Well, if you're visiting with us this morning, we've been trekking through the book of Exodus this year together. And one of the things that we keep coming back to week after week after week is that every single thing that God does, every single thing that God has done on behalf of his people, for his people, to his people, is for one purpose. For one purpose, that they would know that he is the Lord their God. And bit by bit by bit, what we have seen is that throughout this journey, God has revealed more and more of himself to his people. He didn't just throw all of who he was on them up front. But as they journeyed through the desert, as they camped around this mountain called Sinai, God is revealing himself more and more and more. And if you remember back to Exodus chapter 19, God tells them that I have called you out of Egypt. I have brought you out of Egypt. I have redeemed you out of slavery so that you would live into a new identity as my people, that you would be a kingdom of priests, that you would be a holy nation, that through you and your relationship with me, all the other nations of the world will know that I am God, that they can have life with me under my rule and under my reign. But as we saw last week, the people of Israel exchanged that connection, that identity, that purpose with the true and living God for a connection with God that they could make with their own hands. They took it into their own hands, into their own timing, in the way that they wanted it to be. 
And on the heels of that betrayal, what we read, what you just heard read this morning, Moses and Israel will find, they will find out who God really is. They will find out in a way that they have never understood before that God is, that God always has been, and that God always will be. In chapters 32 and 33, what we see is that Moses interceded on behalf of the people, that they betrayed God, that they had rebelled against God, that they had taken something that God had given them, something that was holy and precious, a relationship and a connection to him. They had taken that into their own hands, and God wants to wipe them out because of that. God vows to annihilate them off the face of the earth, and Moses steps in and intercedes on behalf of Israel, and God doesn't. God relents. God changes his mind. We're going to get to that in a second. And he forgives their idolatry and their betrayal. But, as we read, their relationship to him was going to change. Did you catch that? God says, I'm not going to wipe you out, but you're going to keep on going. But instead of me going with you, I'm going to send an angel. I'm going to send an angel ahead of you. Can you imagine what that meant? This entire time as they had left Egypt, God's presence had been with them. God had been with them each step of the way. But because of their sin, God says, hey, I'm going to forgive you. But your connection to me is going to change. Our relationship is going to look different. I'm not going to go with you. I'm not going to go before you. I'm going to send an angel. I'm going to send an angel to be with you. Moses intercedes again. Moses intercedes again and reminds God of his relationship to his people. Reminds God again of the covenant that he had made with his people. God, these are your people. These are the things that you promised to do. This is what you said. This is what I need from you, God. I need you to come and be with me as I lead these people into the promised land. And what does God do? He listens. He listens and he says, okay, I will go with you. And I will be with you. I love this from Dallas Willard in his book, The Divine Conspiracy. Listen to what he says. God's response to our prayers, our intercessions, is not a charade. He does not pretend that he is answering our prayer when he is only doing what he was going to do anyway. Our requests really do make a difference in what God does or does not do. The idea that everything would happen exactly as it does, regardless of whether we pray or not, is a specter that haunts the minds of many who sincerely profess belief in God. It makes prayer psychologically impossible, replacing it with dead ritual at best. And of course, God does not respond to this. You wouldn't either. Moses' intercession here isn't a dead ritual. He's not just saying words. God intended to wipe the people out, but he didn't. God intended to send an angel ahead, but he, in fact, went with the people. This is a personal interaction between God and Moses. Moses moved God. Moses affected what God chose to do because God invited Moses to do that. God made space to do that. God spoke to Moses as a what? As a friend. As a friend speaks to a friend. That blows my mind. That blows my mind. But what we see as we move through this passage is that God not only that Moses not only intercedes and God responds to that intercession, but that God also restores the covenant. Full-fledged. Look at verse 17 of chapter 33 again. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Now listen to this. Moses said, Please show me your glory. Man, Moses is bold, isn't he? 
Moses had just come before God and reminded God of things that you and I would be scared to say to God. Hey, God, you remember what you said about the covenant? You remember who these people are? You know what will happen if you destroy them? And God, in his mercy, relents and listens to Moses. I would have stopped right there. I would have counted that as a victory. But Moses pushes it even further, and he says, please show me your glory. God, please show me what you are really like. And look at God's response. God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But God said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Can I see who you really are, God? What we are going to focus on the rest of our time here this morning is two things that happen. Two amazing, incomprehensible things. God's answers to that question. The first is, Yes, I will meet with you. After everything that's taken place up to this point, I will meet with you. And secondly, the most amazing thing, the thing that everything else in the rest of Scripture is built upon, is that God tells Moses his name. God tells Moses his name. If you remember in Exodus chapter 3, when God called Moses to lead his people out of Egypt in that burning bush, Moses is scared. Moses, Moses has no confidence in himself at all. And he says, God, if I show up and I say, God is going to deliver you, and they ask me, what is his name? Who is this God? In the Hebrew, that is translated, what's the meaning of his name? What's the meaning of this God's name? What is the significance of God's name? And do you remember what God said? In answer to his question, who are you? What are you like? God says, I am who I am. That's not a name, is it? That's a description. That's a description of God's character. It could be translated, whatever I am, I will be. Whatever I am, I will be. It's God saying to Moses, you tell my people that I am who I really am. That I am not fronting, that I'm not faking, that I'm not going to pull the rug out from underneath you at some point. Who I am is who I will be. Now God's being cryptic here. He's giving Moses and he's giving the people a little bit. He's revealing a little bit of who he is. But right here, finally, on this mountain, God answers that question. And God says, I am the Lord, the Lord. Now, this gets a little bit tricky because this is not actually what God said. God didn't call himself the Lord, the Lord, because the Lord is a title. It's not a name. What is actually here in the Hebrew is from the root word, I am. And it's the word Yahweh. Yahweh. And it's translated Lord because not very long after this, the Hebrews were scared. They were afraid to actually say the name of God, to actually write the name of God. And so they started translating the name of God into their word for Lord. But what is important about this, if you want to dive into that, there's a lot of things we can talk later. What is important here is that God tells Moses, this is what I want to be called. I want you to call me. I want to be known as Yahweh. That is my name. Yahweh, Yahweh. And not only does God say his name, but in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 34, God answers the question, what am I like? This is my name, and this is what that name means. And I want to walk through phrase by phrase here over the next few minutes of how God describes himself. 
This is who I am. This is what I want you to know about me. And look at the first thing he says in verse 6. Yahweh, Yahweh, merciful and gracious. Think about if you were a person living in the ancient Near East and you were inundated with a number of gods that you worshipped. I mean, these were people who weren't skeptical about spiritual things like we are. They weren't offend, you know, it didn't offend their modern sensibilities that we would talk about God and unseen things in our scientific Western minds. These were people who believed in gods. But, all, but these gods were portrayed as, as very human-like gods. They were gods who were moody and prideful, gods who were unstable and vengeful. People lived in fear every single day of somehow getting sideways of all these gods. And here Yahweh says, the first thing, I am merciful and I am gracious. That's the first thing that God wants his people to know about him. Now, we're going to talk about some Hebrew words here, and I'm going to butcher these Hebrew words because I'm a hillbilly, and I have enough trouble with English, uh, and so Hebrew is extra hard for me. But this word that's translated compassionate and merciful is the Hebrew word rahum. And what that word comes from is the Hebrew word, get this, for the female womb. For the female womb. It is a feeling word. It is a word that is used about the feeling that a mother has for a child that is in her womb. If you remember that story of the two women who are fighting over a child and they come to King Solomon and they're fighting over this child and Solomon in his wisdom says, okay, take the baby, split it in half. You can each have part of it. And what happens? His real mom steps up and says, no, you give it to this other woman. That word is rehum. That intense, visceral feeling of love that that mom had for her child. The other word here that's translated gracious is the root word hanun, and it's an action word. It's a picture of God throughout the Old Testament. It's used over and over and over again of God doing something, responding to the needs of his people, protecting them, acting with justice, rescuing them. God is like a mother. God is like a father who feels deeply for his children and comes to their rescue when they need him. After all, that the Israelites had done to offend Yahweh, betray their commitment to him, lie about what he is really like in their fear and in their trembling that God is going to wipe them off the face of the earth. God says, I am gracious, I am merciful, I love you like your mother and your father love you. Gracious, merciful, Next, God says, I'm slow to anger. I'm slow to anger. And in the Hebrew, the word that's used for this literally means long in the nostrils. Long nostrils. I love that because what happens when you and I get angry? I mean, I can speak from experience because this happened to me yesterday. And we get angry. And what happens? Our chest bows up. You know, our chest swells up. We bow our back out, you know. Our nostrils flare out and we unload on whoever is the object of our anger. But what does it mean to be slow to anger? Self-control. What happens there? Mouth shut. <laughs> we take a deep breath. We breathe out our nose, don't we? We breathe out our nose in those moments of anger, in those moments of frustration. We are showing self-control. God is patient. God is, to use an old-fashioned Bible word, long-suffering with us. Amen? God looks at us in all of our mess, and he's patient. The Targum, which was a, a, an Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Bible that was popular in Jesus' day. It was kind of a paraphrase. Think the, the message 
the Message Bible, if you're familiar with that, of Jesus' day, translates this verse this way. Yahweh is patient. The one who makes anger distant and brings compassion near. God's anger is far away. God's compassion is close by. We can make God angry. We have to work really, really hard at it. This tells us something about the depth of Israel's betrayal, doesn't it? That God was ready to wipe them out. We talked about this last week, but the Bible doesn't shy away from God and his wrath. Over 600 times in the Bible, we read about God's wrath. And I've talked to lots of people over the years who say, man, I just cannot believe in a God of wrath. Sure you can. Sure you can. Because you get angry. Because you get angry about things you should get angry about. You get angry about evil. You get angry about injustice. You get angry about the oppressed and the vulnerable being taken advantage of. You can believe in a God who is wrathful, in a God who gets angry over sin and over evil because you do. I love how John Stott, a British pastor, theologian, defines God's anger as his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and all of its manifestations. God is angry when anger is called for. Praise God. But his baseline is compassion and love and grace, which is underscored by the next line, where he says, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That first word is the Hebrew word hesed. And we do not have an English word for it. We have a hard time translating it. It's a covenant term. We know that. And so we translate it as steadfast, loyal, unfailing. And that second word is emet, which means trustworthy. It can be counted on. It's sure. God's love is loyal to the bitter end. God can always be counted on. And he doesn't love us begrudgingly. But look what it says. It's abounding love. It's love that spills over the sides. It's love that cannot be contained. It's a reminder here to the Israelites of God's loyalty to them, God's love for them, that his covenant drives his relationship and commitment to them even in spite of their idolatry and their betrayal. God is not going anywhere. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Love is the characteristic that's repeated here. And we know that in the scriptures, when things are repeated, it's an emphasis. It drives home the point that God maintains or he guards or he protects his love. He wants his people to experience his love. And look at the scope of his love. It's not just for a few. It's not just for a lucky few, a select few. He protects and maintains his love for thousands, thousands. And he is forgiving. And that word forgiving means to lift up in the Hebrew, to take away, to shoulder the iniquity, the transgression, the sin. Three words used to describe the extent and the depth of human depravity. What God is saying here is that I forgive it all. I forgive it all, no matter how small, no matter how large, your sin, your wickedness, your evil, no matter what it is, I will forgive it. There is no depth, there, there is no limit to the depth of God's forgiveness. And what I love about this, what I love about these passages that we've been looking at over the last couple weeks is that God is eager to forgive. Not once does Moses have to twist God's arm. Not once does Moses have to bargain with God. That Moses just asks for it. He asks for God to forgive. He asks for God to pardon. And what does God do? You got it. You got it. I forgive. I pardon your sin, your iniquity, your transgression. 
But here's something we have to deal with. A God who will by no means clear the guilty. Yahweh is a forgiving God. But the reality is that there are some people who don't want forgiveness. There are some people who don't want God's forgiveness. There are some people who love evil. People who lust for blood. People who revel in lies. Yahweh's goal is a world that is filled with his presence. A world where he rules. A world and an existence where his intent for life as it should be is realized, which means it's a world without evil. A world without sin. A world without wickedness. God's justice isn't a vendetta. God's justice is part of him bringing healing and renewal to this world. So his presence will be known. His presence will fill the earth. That life with God under the rule of God will be a reality. And God will not stop until that's true. Until that is true and realized. Visiting iniquity on the fathers, of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is a troublesome one. What does this mean? Well, very simply put, a parent's sin has consequences for the future of their children, right? We know that. There are those of us in this room who are experiencing that right now. Affairs, criminal activity, selfishness, abuse, children that suffer consequences because of their parents' sin, sin that is undealt with, sin that is unrepentant. But also, sin runs in the family. There is such a thing as generational sin. Sin that's, that's not dealt with will grow. It will metastasize. It will spread down the family tree. Those in this room who are dealing with that know that it's deep, that it's significant, that it's wounding, and that that kind of sin isn't just put to rest overnight. Because Yahweh is just. He will continue to punish sin and root it out generation after generation after generation, after generation, until it's completely gone. Why? Because he wants us to know him. He wants us to live free from the slavery of sin. If you move forward in this story, you'll come to the book of Numbers, chapter 14. The Israelites are camped on the, on the banks of the Jordan River. And on the other side of the bank is the land that God has promised them. Moses sends spies over into that land to see what it's like. Who lives there? What's this land like? And they come back and they give a report that there are giants there. <laughs> that, there are, that there are warring tribes there. That this land is a, a land that they could never imagine flowing with milk and honey and everything else that they would need for life but they're going to have to fight. And they get scared. And the people say, no, we don't want to do this. And they literally say, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They had gone this entire way. They are on the threshold of the land that God says, I'm giving this land. I've already given it to you. This is your land. And they said, no, nah, we don't want that. That looks too hard. We're going to go back to Egypt. That sounds better to us. 430 years of slavery and oppression sounds better to us right now. And again, God vows to wipe them out. <laughs> I'm going to wipe you out. And again, Moses intercedes and he quotes Exodus 34. God, remember when you said this about who you are? Remember that? Please forgive us. Please pardon us. And again, God shows mercy. There's a pattern here. Israel rebels. God vows to annihilate them. Moses intercedes. God forgives. It's driving home a point. 
over and over and over and over again. God forgives, but do you know what happened? They still had to experience the consequences because an entire generation died in the wilderness and their children were forced to wander with their parents for 40 years before they got to go into the promised land. Generation after generation, the sins of the fathers visited on the children. God is forgiving. Sin is not. God is forgiving, but sin is not. I mentioned a few minutes ago that so many of us, maybe some in this room, so many people say, I can't believe in a God of wrath. Well, sure you can, but you know what it's harder to believe? The thing that I can't wrap my mind around is a God of mercy, a God of love, a God of grace. I can understand of a God, a God who gets angry and who wants to wipe people out. I can understand of a God, I can understand a God who is wrathful, who takes vengeance on those who go sideways of him and rebel against him. But I have no categories for a God who eagerly forgives the most depraved people in our world. I can't wrap my head around that. I have no clue what that is like. Can you believe this morning in a God who extends mercy and grace to the rapist, to the pedophile, to the abuser, to the killer who unloads an automatic weapon inside of a school? Can you believe in a God who welcomes the absent parent? the cheating spouse, the con artist, the oppressor of the weakest and most vulnerable into his family. Can you believe, are you okay with a God like that? I can believe in a God of wrath. I have a hard time believing in a God of mercy and in a God of love. Exodus 32 through 34 calls BS on this notion that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and the God of the New Testament is a God of love. Because what I see here in these, page, in these pages, pages from God's own mouth and by his action is a God who is gracious and merciful, who is abounding in love, who is steadfast and loyal to the bitter end in the face of some jacked up, disobedient, rebellious, betraying people. That's what I see. That's what speaks to me. God is ready to show mercy. His forgiveness is close by. His love spills over for anyone who comes to him and asks for it. Sometimes we, as children of God, live with the attitude, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission, right? Well, I want to tell you this morning, you can. You can. And God will be quick. God is eager to forgive, but you also better be prepared for the consequences. God forgives, but sin does not. God's children can justify, can make excuses. We can be deceived into thinking, well, did God really say that? Because that's not how I feel. That's not what seems right to me. But because God loves us, he will deal with our sin. Because God wants the best for us, he will deal with our sin. Because God wants us to experience real life, he will deal with our sin. Sin is dehumanizing. Life with God is actually what it means to be fully human. God wants us to live free from the power of sin. God wants us to avoid the consequences of our sin. This is sobering. It should be sobering to us. But his grace and his mercy, his overflowing love, his forgiveness should lead us this morning to repentance. His kindness to us should lead us to fall down on our face and say, God, I come back. 
Maybe that's where you need to be this morning. Remember when Jesus' disciples said, Lord, will you please show us the Father? Will you please show us this God? And what did Jesus say? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus Christ is the confirmation that everything that Yahweh says is true is true. That he is this kind of God. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus proclaimed that God, that who God is, is who God will be. Jesus, a real man who lived a real life, shows us the glory of God full of mercy and grace, abounding in love and in truth. In Jesus Christ, we can say, yes, I know that this God is like This God is who he says he is. This is what God is like. And so this morning, I want to encourage you very simply. Come to this Jesus. Wherever you are this morning, whatever you're dealing with this morning, whatever you're walking through this morning, come to this Jesus. Come before this God and receive mercy. Know that you are loved and know that life with God, under the rule of God, life that you were meant for is being offered and extended to you. We will have stations up here to my right and to my left. For those of you who are followers of Jesus, come, take a piece of bread, dip it in the juice. We will have a gluten-free station at the back of the center aisle. Praise God for who he is. Lord, we lift this up to you, and we're just thankful. Our hearts overflow with thanksgiving that this is the God we serve, that this is the God we bow down before, that this is a God who we worship this morning, that this is a God who is with us every single step of the way. May you be glorified. May you be praised. In Jesus' name, amen.